Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And once again, happy anniversary. Some who are here or were in our early service today would have been at the very first services of St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church 37 years ago. And some of you joined this year. Maybe your pictures were up there. And most of us came somewhere in between. But all of us are one church. And we all celebrate together because uh, the blessing of today is what God has done with this church, looking back at his faithfulness and looking forward to what, what he will do. Four years ago, on Anniversary Sunday, we began looking uh, each year at a different church in, of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. First was Ephesus, then Smyrna, last year was Pergamum, and this year Thyatira. And each church that Jesus addressed uh, had a different history. Each church had different strong points, different challenges that they were, they were facing. Some were parallel, but they were all unique. And so as we look at these, I wanted to look at them uh, once a year. Plus, you know, over the years, people keep saying, why don't you preach on the book of Revelation? So this is how I am accomplishing that. <laughs> I'm preaching on the book of Revelation in this way. So uh, as we look at them, uh, and you look at churches down through the centuries, sometimes you will see a real parallel in what's going on in a church. Or in a particular church, there may be an era of your church where you face some of those things. And I believe most churches are combinations of all of the seven that, uh, that we look at here. But each year also, even though there's some very difficult things uh, that each of the churches were challenged with and called on, I have been encouraged because the one, as we'll see in a moment, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, Jesus loved us enough to go to the cross for us and die for us. So let's look at what he says to the church of Thyatira. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. 
I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each one of you according to your works, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, will you give us ears to hear? We need to hear from you about that church, and we need your spirit to apply it to us and to our church. And so we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And the first thing I want to do before we we get into the specifics of what what Jesus says to the church in the city of Thyatira is to try to figure out what we know about the city that this church is in. So of all the the cities uh, that are are mentioned, the seven churches, uh, Thyatira was the smallest of the cities and the least significant. That's why you probably uh, don't know a whole lot about it. Um, I had to look it up on, on the map to try to figure out uh, where it, it was, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a moment. It was actually about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum, so now you know where Thyatira uh, is. <laughs> you, can, you can look on your maps in the back of your Bible uh, later on. But uh, last year we looked at Pergamum, and it appears that there are some parallel challenges between uh, the two churches. The word Thyatira means unceasing sacrifice. Now, its location does have to do with that. Um, when uh, Asia Minor would be invaded, it would be one of the the first cities that uh, the invading forces would come to. And Pergamum was up behind them, a more important city. Now, the forces and the people in Thyatira could never hold off 
the invaders, uh, and so they were taken over a number of times. But their goal was to, to fight uh, hard enough that they gave Pergamum and the other more important cities, bigger cities, uh, some time to prepare so that then they perhaps could fight them off and, and drive them back ultimately. So, so that makes sense that uh, they, they were constantly sacrificing and that even became uh, what that city was known by in terms of its name. It was a trade city also, uh, especially in purple dye. Now I mention that because that will ring a bell with some of you that in the book of Acts, there was a woman named, who knows, Lydia, uh, who was a seller of purple. And she actually had lived in uh, Thyatira, but that's how they identified her as the seller of purple. But sadly, like a lot of trade cities, uh, there was an infusion of a lot of paganism that went on there. Pagan worship, especially of Apollos, uh, which apparently sometimes spilled into the culture of the church. Not, not even necessarily as much in the actual uh, worship of those in the church when they're in the church, but the culture of those in the church. We'll explain that in a moment. Uh, so Jesus begins to address them. And the first thing he does is he commends the good that they are doing. Look at verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed your first. So he mentions four areas, and he commends them for it before he ever talks about any of the challenges or any of his concerns. The first thing that he mentions is love, which, if you remember, Revelation, written by John, so we shouldn't be surprised that John, the apostle of love, that writes so much about love in his other writings, would list that first uh, in terms of how, what they were commended for. And then the word faith here, uh, it, it could be the word faithfulness. So he's about to talk to them about some challenges, but he commends them for their faithfulness, their service. That word, that, that's the word where we get our word deacon, which you know, has to do with seeing the needs of others and serving others. So he, Jesus is saying, you know, I commend you for that. I see that in your church. And then he talks about their patient endurance or perseverance. Now, each of those, that, that could be a whole sermon series right there. There's a lot in each of those words. But what I want you to notice about it is the, the next thing that he says. He says, and that your latter works exceed the first. And that's really, in terms of our own lives, that's what we should all desire that we are, are growing, that we are uh, maturing to the point that we are uh, more loving than we used to be, more faithful than we used to be, have more of a servant's heart, 
have more patience and perseverance than we used to have, not less. So he commends that, them for that. But that also for us should be how we evaluate our own sanctification. And sanctification is just merely the, you know, the, a bigger word for growing to be more and more like Jesus while we're here on this earth. That's how we should look at our own sanctification. So, let's say you have a bad day, and if you were just looking at that one day spiritually, you'd say, man, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. <laughs> if, if somebody looked at me today, they might, they might wonder if I'm, I'm even a Christian. Or you have a bad few days or a week or whatever. Uh, you can really get bogged down in that, and we should evaluate But in terms of our overall growth, what we need to do is look at the bigger picture. So instead of looking at today and getting all depressed about this, we also need to say, but wait a minute, where was I a year ago or three or five years ago, or depending on how long you've known the Lord, or 10 years ago or even longer, or 37 years ago? Where was I in my Christian walk? And the, the, the answer, uh, hopefully, will be, well, you know what? That's encouraging because three years ago or five years ago, I was dealing with this, and, and God's done a work in me, and I'm not even dealing with that anymore. I got other issues here I'm dealing with. But by God's grace, those things are not the, at the forefront so that you can see progress in your own walk so that like he says to the church at Thyatira your latter works exceed your first now how does he know about their works and our works well because he is according to verse 18 the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire I love that phrase. What's it mean? Well, one commentator says that his eyes are like a flame of fire signifying his piercing, catch this alliteration, his piercing, penetrating, perfect knowledge, a thorough insight into all persons and all things, one who searches the hearts. Down in verse 23, he talks about he's the one that searches the hearts. So that that one that perfectly knows their hearts then basically says, okay, I've commended you for these things, but I see a contradiction here. There is a contradiction in these things and another area. And he calls them out on their sin of tolerance of all things. Look at verse 20. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed 
to idols. So who, who is Jezebel? Well, Jezebel in the Old Testament uh, was married to King Ahab. Uh, she was into uh, pagan worship, uh, the worship of Baal, Satan, and indulged in, in sexual perversions and, and, and pushed that, that cultic uh, aspect of worship was trying to push that uh, on God's people. In Thyatira, we have another Jezebel. You don't hear that name very often. Not many name their little girls Jezebel anymore. There's good reason for that. I've just described it to you. But here he calls out this Jezebel, whether that was actually her name, it may well have been. But it may not have been, but they knew who he was talking about when he said Jezebel. Because they knew of the other Jezebel. Here's how she's described this as a female, she was a female prophetess. Some think there were dozens of them that they were calling out. I think it's possible it could be one main one, but we we really don't know that. But what they were doing was doing a teaching that, again, parallel with the Old Testament, Jezebel was trying to push God's people into this sexual perversion and a wrongful worship. Now, I told you it was a trade city. Um, One commentator uh, tells us how they did business in their trade guild or be parallel with a union, but this this, uh, uh, guild that they were in. He said these guilds met frequently. They met for a common meal. Such a meal was, at least in part, a religious ceremony. It would probably meet in a heathen temple. It would certainly begin with a libation to the gods. And the meal itself would largely consist of meat offered to idols. So the official position of the church meant that a Christian could not attend such a meal. So the position of the church as a Christian, you you can't take part in that. And yet, to trade in that city, you had to be a part of this guild. And that was the issue that, that Christians in Thyatira were dealing with. How do we, how do we deal with this? How, how do we make a living here? And so evidently Jezebel was saying, don't worry about it. You don't have to give up your, your Christian beliefs. Just go and be a part of that guild and take part while you're there. Put your, you know, keep your religion, but, but just don't make waves over there. After all, you got to make a living. You got to feed your family. Does that sound at all familiar? Oh, what a challenge. Don't make waves. It might cost you a promotion or your job or your popularity. Your neighbors may not like you. It's okay. Just keep quiet. 
I would suggest that this temptation to compromise is far more of a a temptation to many believers than a head-on attack. You know, an attack where somebody, a boss says, you have to lie. I'm not going to lie. I'm a Christian. But this one, you can see how you can almost justify it in your mind. Yeah, you're right. I, I, I don't see a lot of choices here. But I'm not giving up my faith. But I do have to, you fill in the blank. Here's the problem. Later in this passage, Jesus calls that activity the deep things of Satan. It's not a lightweight little thing like Jezebel was trying to say, oh, you're fine. We're having a great study on Wednesday night that Jason is, is teaching on spiritual warfare. And if you don't come on Wednesday, you can watch it uh, live stream as well. But one of the things we're doing in, in order to understand spiritual warfare is understand the enemy. And this is how Satan works. For the, the average believer that's trying to follow Christ, a head-on attack is not going to ordinarily work but it's these side attacks these things where you can almost justify in your mind compromise we are in a day of political correctness where sometimes if you take a biblical stand on an issue you may be hated You may be put down as narrow-minded or intolerant. Now, like this church, we have always got to stand for love and make our stand in love and in a loving way. And yet, that doesn't mean that we agree with any who would contradict the word of God. And the word of God is the one place we know what God is thinking, what what is true, because he has revealed it to us. So when we take our stand, don't do it on opinion. It's not a political statement at all. Don't do it on opinion. Go back to the word of God and make that what we will stand on and stand firm on. That's where we draw the line. So even with confronting them with uh, their tolerance of that which is not tolerable to God, Jesus reminds them of his patience. Verse 21, he says, I gave her time to repent, talking about Jezebel, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So God, God didn't just destroy her and her followers. Aren't you glad we have a God that is gracious in that way? I mean, he could... Uh, The moment we contradict him, the moment we sin, he could wipe us out and nobody could ever answer him and say, that's not fair. But he doesn't do that ordinarily. He is patient. But his patience does have an end at some point. 
And that's what we see here. Because he makes it clear his patience doesn't last forever. And he describes the judgment on those who participate in the sin. Remember how Jesus has described the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So we talked about the eyes like a flame of fire. What about the feet of burnished bronze? By the way, they, dealt, they also dealt in bronze and copper. So they understood uh, a pure bronze, the strength of it, and how when it was pure, uh, that which tried to go against it just, just couldn't survive once it was burnished and, and uh, made in its final form. Matthew Henry says this about those feet. He says that his feet are like fine brass, that the outgoings of his providence are steady, awful, and, and all uh, pure and holy. As he judges with perfect wisdom, so he acts with perfect strength and steadiness. So how serious is mixing Christian truth with lies that come from unbiblical teaching and leads to immoral living. How serious is that? I will just read it once again. This is how serious. Behold, verse 22, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. We are not going to go through that in terms of the specifics. It's sufficient to note that God's judgment is horrific. But whenever you note that, remember this. That's what Jesus took on the cross for us. God's judgment. It was horrific. That's what he did for us. God doesn't leave the church of Thyatira or us in that position. He encourages those who stand firm with him. Look at verse 24 through 29. Again, I will just read it through because I, I, I really want to get to the, uh, the 28th verse. I, I want you to pay attention to this, but listen to the buildup. To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching. So there evidently was a faithful remnant. Some who, who refused, some who said no. I'm not going to compromise. Who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. 
That's for the remnant who had not compromised, who had stood firm against heresy, who had not been hypocritical in their actions, who held fast, who conquered. He says, you're going to receive the morning star. Now, what's the morning star? Well, in our, in our, our skies, the, the morning star you see at the darkest part of the night, two, three o'clock in the morning. And then there's the morning star. And it starts out dim and gets brighter and brighter. And what that morning star tells us, if you're ever looking up at the sky at that point, what you know is the dawn's coming. The light's on its way here. Why does he say, I'll give you the morning star? Well, back in the same book in Revelation 22, verse 16, I, Jesus, am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The morning star is Jesus. The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church, if we persevere in the darkness, if we follow him, if we stand for him, if we hold fast, and if we conquer and do so until the end, either the end of our life or till Jesus comes back, the dawn will come. There'll be no more darkness. We will be rewarded with a light that will not fade. We will be rewarded with Jesus. Let's bow. We can't wait for the morning star. We need him so badly. And we can't make it through this darkness unless we see him more and more clearly. And so, Lord, we ask for that in his precious name. Amen.